Well, if you've got your Bibles this morning, we're going to Romans chapter 10. Uh, We're past the halfway point and we're picking up steam. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm going to be taking on another whole chapter this week, the whole chapter 10. Uh, I was looking this week at the calendar, and if I keep that pace up, if you can bear with me through that pace, I think we could get the book of Romans done before Christmas, which seems like a huge achievement for us. Uh, I'll have to go a little, you'd probably take it about a chapter a week, but uh, I think it's doable, so we'll see where we get. And then always anticipate, uh, as we come into the holiday season, we always take the month of December to have people in the congregation speak, share their testimony. One of my favorite traditions we have as a church, uh, we call it our Emmanuel God With Us series, and people share their testimony of how God has been faithful, has been there through their lifetime with them. So look forward to that, and believe it or not, it is almost the holiday season. It is coming quickly. But today, Romans chapter 10. We're in the middle of what is considered the third section of the book of Romans. Uh, that third section is chapters 9, 10, and 11. In chapters 1 through 8, Paul had been explaining how Jesus and the Spirit had been at work forming a new people of God by fulfilling those long-held promises that God would bring together a people from all over the world, from every corner of the world, how he had fulfilled the law and now was, through the Spirit, speaking out to the ends of the earth, the hope, the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. Well, that raises some pretty big questions for Paul's audience that we began looking at last week in chapter 9. If so many of God's own people, Israel, had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, how could Jesus be that Messiah? How could he be the fulfillment of what God had been promising to Israel? The question goes something like, had God then abandoned Israel to pursue that promise with a new people? Did being Jewish and having this long tradition make it harder for you to believe and accept Jesus? So many would have looked at the majority of Jews who had rejected Jesus as Messiah and come to conclusions that maybe God had moved on and decided to now do his work amongst the Gentiles, abandoning those promises to Israel. Those questions are at the center of what Paul wants to do in chapters 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. You can think of these three chapters broadly as Paul talking about the relationship of God with Israel in three ways, past present, and future. I really think that's kind of what's driving Paul in these three chapters. Last week in chapter 9, Paul, if you remember you were here for that sermon, we looked at several Old Testament examples of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and of uh, the Exodus and Pharaoh. Paul spent much of his time looking back on Israel's history and pointing out how so often God did the unexpected thing used Israel's own rebellion or the rebellion of Pharaoh to bring about his glory and secure his people in new ways. In other words, Paul was looking at the history of Israel and how God had been faithful. In chapter 10, what Paul's going to do is look at the present rejection of Christ. How is it that Israel, in his day, was rejecting Jesus as Messiah? And then getting to the big question next week in chapter 11, so what then is this future for Israel, this promise of God's faithfulness to his people. So if you've got your Bibles, chapter 10, I think we'll see as we saw last week, although Paul is taking on a very specific question about Israel's rejection, uh, so much of it applies to us. So much of what is on Paul's mind has to do with this bigger thing that God, the Spirit, is now doing. And I think you'll see it's an important message, just as it was for them, for us as well. Romans chapter 10, I'm going to read through the whole chapter, verse 1. Brothers, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, 
but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But as of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. Romans chapter 10. You'll remember that I said Paul is taking a look at Israel's current rejection of Christ. We looked at last week how Israel, within their human tendency, like all of ours, was to rebel, to go their own way, to find their own path, yet God had so often been faithful to them. So what now do we make of Israel's current rejection of Christ that Paul's writing about? And here you also notice for Paul... This is, once again, a personal challenge. We spent time talking about this last week when Paul said that this topic is not for him some dry theological statement. He writes it with anguish of heart. Here he says, verse 1, Brothers, by heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. For Paul, this is a personal matter. Then Paul explains what that current challenge is in verse 2 and 3. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, But not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What Paul recognizes is that the Jewish people, very much like he did as he was growing up and studying within the Jewish faith, were a people of great zeal for God, passion and discipline and focus 
These were not people who were sort of uh, take it or leave it, mediocre. These were people whose identity, whose lives, whose every decision was based on a zeal and a hunger to obey the law. But Paul's concern is this. They don't have a full knowledge or understanding of what God is doing in their own day. The core issue for Paul is that they've failed to understand the righteousness of God and how it was being revealed to them. Having failed to recognize God's righteousness, what they had come to believe was that their righteousness was what mattered most. Now, to get what Paul's saying here, it's really important that you, uh, you remember our working definition of righteousness in the book of Romans. This is probably the most important word in the book of Romans. It's a theme that comes up for Paul over and over, and it's really important to understand Romans, to understand what Paul is talking about when he talks about God's righteousness. When Paul is talking about God's righteousness, he's referring to God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises to Israel, his word, his commitment to do what is right in regard to the covenants, the promises that he's made to his people. God has done what he said he would do. That's what Paul means when he talks about the righteousness of God. Paul is not calling the Israelites dumb or ignorant in general. (laughs) You stupid people, how come you don't understand? What he's saying is, You haven't recognized the way that God has been righteous, the way that God has fulfilled his promises to you, specifically through Jesus Christ. This is for Paul the big challenge that Israel faces in his own day. They are waiting and believing that their obedience will fulfill the covenant with God. When Paul is saying the covenant has been fulfilled by what Christ has done, God's faithfulness has been revealed to you. That's what's so important about verse 4. Some commentaries say that this is the most deep and succinct theological statement in the Bible because there's a lot going on for Paul to say. You really have to have read all of Romans up to this point. But Paul says in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, using the law and obedience as a form of my righteousness has ended with Christ. Because believing in Christ, he has now become the righteousness, the faithfulness that we couldn't live. Jesus, as the king of the Jews, is faithful in ways that Israel as a people never could prove themselves to be. In all of the ways that they failed or rebelled, the same ways that you and I do as well, Jesus had come and proved faithful and obedient. As their representative... As humanity's representative, Jesus becomes our faithfulness, our righteousness, our fulfillment of the covenant, the law. And by having sent him and his willingness to sacrifice him, God had proved himself willing to fulfill the promises he had long made to his people. The person who recognizes this, that the fundamental message of what God is doing is not obey the law, The fundamental message of what God is doing is Christ has obeyed the law for you. Count yourself in him. The person who recognizes that recognizes that this is fundamentally a message of faith. Faith, counting yourself being a part of Jesus's people. Claiming Jesus as your defense, your righteousness. Being in him. 
So for Paul, the big key, the way that we count ourselves in Christ, with Christ, a part of Christ's righteousness is very familiar words to many of you, probably ones you memorized in Sunday school, maybe as a kid. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For Paul, the big shift that has taken place for Israel is that they are no longer God's people by obedience to the law. They are God's people by a willingness to confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises they had been waiting for. If you don't know about Jesus, if you refuse to recognize him as Messiah, as so many in Paul's day were doing, this whole new way of relating to God through Christ doesn't make a lot of sense. That's why Paul can say that they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. They failed to understand the way in which God has proved himself faithful through Jesus. And therefore, the fallback position is, I will go back to worrying about my own righteousness, establishing it for myself. This is how so many of the people around Paul thought about faith, thought about what it meant to follow God and be God's people. God was constantly testing their obedience, their righteousness. And to use Paul's phrase, what they needed to do was establish their own righteousness. Proof of it. They could show up one day before God and say, look at all of the ways I lived for you. Look at all the rules that I kept. Look at the sacrifice, the consequences of my obedience. This is proof of my righteousness. I have been faithful to my promise to you. Now, some of you uh, are familiar enough with the Reformation period to know that Romans was one of the really important books during the Reformation. The 16th century, as the church began to break, many of the major issues that the Reformers had with Catholicism at the time flowed out of a reading of some of these very chapters from the book of Romans. There are a lot of consequences we could talk about from the Reformation, but one of the most important was realizing this recognition that there is a risk that you can come to Christ, you can come to God, believing in his salvation, his mercy, his grace. I'm not righteous, no one's righteous, I receive it through Christ. But then immediately shift the focus of your life into now that you've received Jesus, proving and earning that righteousness by obedience to him. What the reformers recognized was that you could accept Jesus by faith and then immediately shift your focus to proving yourself, defining your identity by obedience, and righteousness to him. And that slowly over time, you could lose the sense of grace that brought you to Christ and instead fall back into this same way of thinking that my disposition, my relationship towards God is one of a giant test in which I must prove myself faithful to him in the end. You can be just as obsessed, even as Christians today, with this idea of establishing your own righteousness, just as much as the Jewish people were in that day. Uh, Reformers in the 16th century, like Luther, uh, spent a significant amount of their life, their public ministry, trying to draw out this distinction between faith and works. And not just a belief that we should only have faith and not works, but that proper faith will develop behavior on its own. But if you chase after the works, establish my own righteousness, the thing you so often end up sacrificing is faith. This was Paul's point to the Jews. You become ignorant of God's righteousness the more you attempt to establish your own righteousness. So, for instance, Luther writes this in a treatise on good works from the Reformation period. 
We find many today who pray, who fast, who establish endowments, do this or that, lead a good life before men. Yet if you should ask them whether they are sure that what they do pleases God, they say no. They do not know or they doubt. And there are some very learned men who mislead them and say that it is not necessary to be sure of this. And yet, on the other hand, these same men do nothing else but teach good works. Now, all these works are done outside of faith. Therefore, they are nothing and altogether dead. For as their conscience stands towards God, and as it believes, so also are the works which grow out of it. Now, they have no faith, no good conscience towards God. Therefore, the works lack their head And all their life and goodness is nothing. Hence it comes that when I exalt faith and reject such works done without faith, they accuse me of forbidding good works, when in truth I am trying hard to teach real good works by faith. Now, there's an important idea that Luther captures here in this concept of conscience. You can be motivated to do good things, the list Luther gives, pray, fast, establish endowments, if any of you would like to give a major financial endowment to Bent Oak Church, do this or that, live a good life before others. You can do all of these good works out of different motives, different conscience, different ways of believing and understanding what it is that you're doing. You can do that work as a way of establishing your own righteousness. And you know what this is to give a tithe, to pray for somebody, to share your faith, and to walk away saying, I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm doing exactly what is expected of me. I'm living as a Christian is supposed to live. Or also to live out of that same fear of, I've fallen short. I haven't done what I'm supposed to do. One of these days, God's going to run out of patience with me and get me. I keep living in ways that I know are not what I'm supposed to do. Now, Luther's point is not, Don't worry about how you live. That's what he's getting accused of. The point that he's trying to make is you have to be clear about what motivates the things that you do. Your conscience. Do you act towards God because of a gratitude of having received by faith his righteousness for you? Or do you do the things that you do for God because you feel like it's going to go bad for you if you don't? I better do it or else there's going to be negative consequences. I better do it because he'll get me if I don't. This was this idea that obsessed the Jewish people of Paul's day. We have to live up to the covenant. We have to establish our own righteousness or things are going to fall apart on us. What Luther was pointing out during the Reformation period was the most important question is, what motivates that work? If it's not motivated by faith, then it's just self. Looking out for yourself trying to get what's best for yourself, that same heart motive that we trace all the way back to Romans chapter 1, refusing to acknowledge God or give thanks to him, but instead carving out our own way, controlling our own salvation, picking and choosing what we do. Instead, what so much of Romans has been calling for is a submission, a recognition that I am incapable of righteousness, and the only hope that I truly have is for Christ's righteousness, his obedience and faith, to be mine by confessing and believing that I am in him. So Luther could ultimately say, 
in my heart reigns this one article, faith in my dear Lord Christ, the beginning, the middle, and the end of whatever spiritual and divine thoughts I may have, whether by day or by night. In other words, everything about what I do as a Christian, when I turn my attention to prayer, when I turn my attention to fasting, when I turn my attention to being a little better at tithing or sharing my faith, all of it I think through as an implication of faith, of what Christ has done for me and how his righteousness shifts who I am and how I live in this world. For many listening, that can sound like a big leap. Wouldn't it be nice if we could keep a checklist? There were 15 things required by the time you die that you needed to do to get God's fullest blessing. And if you could check those boxes, you would go to bed every night knowing, I've done exactly what was expected of me. This idea of faith, of trusting in Christ's righteousness to be my righteousness, if we were really blunt about it, takes a lot of the control out of our hands. We feel vulnerable. Trust. Faith. Just believe. This phrase, a giant leap of faith. So Paul turns his attention, I think with this in mind, and for many of the Jews of his day, probably a big part of what was so difficult about receiving Paul's message. You want me to abandon my trust in my own obedience and instead put my trust in Christ's obedience. It feels like I'm losing control if I do that. And so Paul turns his attention to two Old Testament references that are important. Paul is going to quote from the book of Deuteronomy. He opens up by saying, do not say in your heart. Now, that's a really famous line from the book of Deuteronomy, and most of Paul's audience would have immediately recognized where that line was coming from, just like all of you who have memorized the book of Deuteronomy because it's so important in Israel's face. You say, oh, of course, I know exactly what Paul is quoting when he quotes those four words, right? Uh, Most of us don't, but they would have. All of these allusions from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy would have been very obvious to Paul's audience. He goes on to say in this quote, do not say in your heart, From Deuteronomy, Moses was warning Israel after they came into the promised land, quote, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, these are the inhabitants of the promised land, that it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. So this is a big warning that Moses gives, God gives through Moses to his people. When I give you the promised land, That land flowing with milk and honey, a land of rest, when you're no longer wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Watch your heart and be careful that you don't come to the conclusion, God has blessed me with this promised land because of my righteousness, because I've been faithful to him, because I've obeyed, he's given me good things. So Paul brings this up. Watch your heart. Pay attention to your conscience. Dig into your motives. And then Paul goes on to quote another famous passage from Deuteronomy. Who will go down into the abyss and who will go up into heaven? Uh, I think Paul is doing something really cool here. Uh, This is a little bit of a biblical nerd moment. But if you spend a lot of time digging into this passage from Deuteronomy and how important it was to the Jewish people, Paul's really smart in what he does here. In other words, it sounds like what Paul is saying is who can go and get righteousness? Who can go into heaven? Who can go into the abyss and bring this righteousness we need, right? Who can really be obedient? Who can go and find this thing, righteousness, and bring it into themselves? 
What you expect Paul to say, setting up these two questions, who can ascend into heaven and who can descend into the abyss, what you would expect him to say is how hard righteousness is. Isn't this what Paul's been saying in the book of Romans? No one is righteous. No, not one. Why do you try to live by your own righteousness when you fail at righteousness? And then he quotes these lines, who could ascend into heaven and find righteousness? Who could descend into hell and find righteousness? You would expect Paul to say, righteousness is so hard. Who of you could ever find it? But the audience would have recognized that's not how Deuteronomy 9 that he's quoting from actually goes. It actually says something totally different. This is how Deuteronomy 9 and Deuteronomy 30, these two quotes, how it reads. For this commandment that I command to you today is not hard for you. This is from the book of Deuteronomy. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it down to us? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you can do it. When the readers hearing Paul's word in the book of Romans heard him quoting Deuteronomy 30, who can ascend, who can descend, What they would have remembered about Deuteronomy 30 was the point of that passage. God has put his word in your mouth and in your heart so that you don't have to ascend or descend to receive it. God has brought his law close to you so that you can do it was the point of Deuteronomy 30. You don't have to manipulate this God or crack the puzzle or figure out a secret prayer that gets his favor. God has told you how to live. What's really important about this is understanding how that law worked for Israel. God's righteousness had never been for Israel a test, an obstacle. I'm going to give you a set of really hard and difficult rules, and we're going to see how many of you can live up to it. And those of you who can will prove that you're my people. That's not how the law had ever worked for Israel. It was not about seeing how extreme they could be, some test of endurance. Israel had received the law, remember back to Exodus, because God had wanted to dwell with his people. He had not given them the law, and once they were obedient, then he rescued them. He rescued them, he called them out to worship him in the wilderness, and he provided them this law so that he could dwell in their midst, so he could be their God with his people. And he says in Deuteronomy 30, he hadn't sent them searching for this righteousness, but he had put his law, his presence into their hearts and their mouths so that he could be their people. He gave them the law so that they might receive him into their midst. What God's law had been in the Old Testament was a reflection of his heart, to be with his people, to be a part of his people. And so what Paul does with Deuteronomy 30 is now say, this is still God's heart. Righteousness is not about you proving yourself to God. Righteousness is about God doing what we could not do so that he could dwell with his people, be with his people. So for Paul, confessing Christ with your mouth, Believing with Christ in your heart has all of the echoes of that same God who in Deuteronomy 30 would say, I'm pulling you get together to be my people, not by your effort, but by my grace. 
by my faithfulness, by my commitment to you. What Paul does is turn to the motive of God for giving the law in Deuteronomy 30 and flips the entire understanding of the law in the Jewish mind. You think you can prove something by obedience, your righteousness, but the law was never about that. The law always existed so that you could receive God into your midst. The law always existed so that you could be God's people and he be a part of you. Yet, so often Israel rejected that God. And so too, now that that God has come not in the law but in the flesh, Israel has refused to receive him as well. What Paul is trying to help the Israelites see is that God has always been doing his work by grace. The law itself, his willingness to be with Israel after their rebellion was grace. It's always been about God wanting to reveal himself to a people. It's always been about God's longing to dwell in the midst of humanity. Like in Genesis, when God walked with Adam and Eve in the perfection of creation. And like that promise of revelation when this new Jerusalem would descend, there would be no need for sun or moon or stars because the light of God's presence would be the light of that city. And so Paul wraps up, a missionary and a preacher, getting to this point, God's longing to be with all of humanity, and he sort of explodes into his own zeal, this message that this must be preached and heard by every person on earth to the ends of the earth, So that God can dwell amongst all people in all places. His spirit at work within all of creation. Received by grace. Who says I have received God because of my righteousness. But through Christ we say we have received God because of his righteousness. His faith. We are in on this because of God's goodness. Not our goodness. And so Paul can conclude from that mystery of Isaiah, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. That the heart of the Jewish and Christian faith is not, I prove my righteousness to God. The heart of this God, the Jewish and the Christian people, is that he would come to us, that he would find us, let me close with this last thought. Um, in Tim Keller, one of his, my favorite books of his, Prodigal God, he shares the story of a woman in his congregation who was really wrestling with this idea of grace, of trying to receive, as I mentioned before, receive God by sheer faith. Just believe and it's yours. It seemed almost absurd. How can God save someone without asking something of us, some way of us doing it, living up to it? She said this to him. He said this to her. I asked her, what was so scary about unmerited free grace? She replied something like this. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life in return. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me in return. Most of us hear these familiar lines, God saves by grace alone, and we say, yeah, 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 I know, I believe that, accepted that, I'm a Christian. 
The truth is, most of us are more uncomfortable with that than we would like to admit. Because ultimately, to receive God by grace alone is to give up control, our own control, of even our own faith and righteousness. If 2020 has taught me anything over the last eight months, I think it's exposed to me and to many of us how little control we actually have. Things that I thought I would do, I didn't do. Things I had planned that were on the calendar didn't happen. It's been, if I were honest, a struggle sometimes to accept things that come that I don't have a say in or can't control or can't fix. To have to recognize that so much of life is not actually in our control, in our hands. There are things we don't have solutions for that we can't fix, that we can't make happen simply because we want them to. I can trick myself into thinking that most of my life is on my terms. I can buy things or go places or imagine that I'm in control of what I'll do. But more and more, we begin to realize that we don't have as much control as we would like. What faith says is I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that that lack of control is not just on my calendar or my bank account. That lack of control is also my own righteousness, my own heart, my tendency to drift away from God. I'm realizing more and more that my primary position towards life, towards God, towards the days to come, is not one of planning or doing or establishing for myself, but one of receiving. Receiving suffering as it sometimes comes, receiving loss as so often the case, but also receiving grace. That the fundamental way I relate to this God is not by proving myself, but by opening my hands, abandoning my own control, and learning to receive. That God gives and God takes away. But faith learns to trust. Ultimately to obey, to live out that trust in a radical kind of obedience. Christ is my righteousness. He is my representative before God. I live in him and through him and by him. And if I can receive from him what he has for me, then it's always for my good. As we saw last week, all things work for good for those who believe, who abandon their own control and learn to open their hands and receive from him who has given his whole life. But it usually means that I have less control than I would like to have. I have to give up my righteousness, establishing my own ways, and receive what he has for me. And so in some ways, it comes to a shockingly simple conclusion for Paul. All of this, ten chapters we've worked through, that the most important thing that you can do in life is simply this. Believe in my heart. Christ is my righteousness. Christ is doing what I could not do. Christ is my identity, my hope, my future. And confess with your mouth, he's my Lord. I'll live this way. I'll believe this. I'll trust this. What a simple phrase Paul says, you're saved. Saved from yourself, from your own desperate establishing of your own way, your own righteousness. In him. Great phrase. Let's close in prayer and we'll worship together.
Heavenly Father, we recognize this morning how prone we are to trying to do our own thing. God, I know my own heart and others well that, God, we want control. We want to be able to decide what happens and how it happens, and we're willing to work hard to get what we think we need. But God, so often that energy for our own righteousness leaves us ignorant to your righteousness, to your faithfulness, to your grace and mercy on us. So we repent this morning. God, we see so many ways you're teaching us to give up control. And so we acknowledge it. That this life is not about what I can get for myself. It's not about what I can make happen for myself, what I can accumulate. But I live so that I can let go and receive you. Recognize what you're doing. See the evidence of your kingdom coming. Your faithfulness to your promises fulfilled in me. By your spirit being poured out into me. Your heart and your motive to be with your people. At work here in this church, in this Sunday morning. And at churches like this one meeting in all sorts of ways all over the globe. People just like us, abandoning their own way, their own control, and saying, God, what you have for me, I receive by faith. You are my righteousness. You are my defense. By your sacrifice, it's through you I stand before God. So we do what Paul called us to this morning. We believe in our hearts. God, pour your spirit into our hearts. Soften our hearts. Allow us to believe even deeper this morning trusting, believing by faith in you. We confess with our mouths. It's not just some private, sentimental feeling we have. God, we declare you to be Lord in our worship, in the testimony of our lives, in the way we act and live. We demonstrate before this world that you are our hope. You are our King. You are our Lord. And all that we have and all that we are, we put in your hands. Believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth. As we worship this morning, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would deepen that conviction in new ways. Teach us the joy, the salvation, the hope that we have in you this morning. It's in your name we pray.